If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. To put it bluntly, the participation of China allowed the Allies to argue that we are not fighting a race war. That's so symbolic importance Symbolically hugely important. And that was very important, especially to the United States. That was Hans van der Ven talking about his new book on China's 20th century wars. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. Today's interview is with Hans van der Ven who's Professor of Modern Chinese History at the University of Cambridge. He is the author of a new book entitled China at War, Triumph and Tragedy in the Emergence of the New China, which explores China's role in World War II and the Korean War, as well as the story of China's civil war, which resulted in the communist takeover of 1949. Putting the questions to hands was fellow China expert, Professor Rana Mitter of the University of Oxford. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here in central London. My name is Rana Mitter and I'm a historian of modern China based at Oxford University. Among the books I've written in the past is China's War with Japan, The Struggle for Survival, an account of the political and social history of China during the years of the Second World War, a still relatively unexplored topic. And that's why it's such a huge pleasure to be here with Professor Hans van der Ven of Cambridge University. Hans has been professor uh, or uh, teaching at Cambridge now for a couple of decades. And during that time, he's established a reputation as a very distinguished and senior scholar of modern Chinese history. He's worked on topics including the origins of the Chinese Communist Party, Sino-American military relations during the Second World War period, and the history of a fascinating organisation called the 
Maritime Customs Service. You want to know what that is? You're going to have to look it up. <laughs> but today, we're going to concentrate on Hans van der Ven's new book, China at War, which is about to be published by Profile in the UK this year and will come out in the United States next year. Hans, mm. welcome. This book, China at War, covers one of the most turbulent periods in China's modern history. Could you perhaps give us an image or a scene from that period that in some ways symbolizes this history for you? I, that's, that's a, well, first of all, thank you for the, for the wonderful introduction uh, and for your own work on the Second World War in China. And I think we share uh, our concerns about that. I think, for me, I think in this period there are many... Uh, scenes that come to mind as uh, sort of important, interesting, and so on. You could mention the great Xi'an incident of December 1936, uh, where Chiang Kai-shek wounds himself as he tries to escape from uh, somebody taking him prisoner. But for me, the most, uh, the most sort of still most vivid image is really on uh, 9 September 1945, which is when Japan surrendered to China. And China did this, uh, the Nash Chinese nationalists did this on, on the 9th of September, uh, because in Chinese, uh, that is, the ninth day, which is, of course, a reference to the 11th of the 11th uh, for the end of World War I. Uh, but also in Chinese, it means uh, forever, forever. These, these sounds are, are, are uh, what do you call it, so the, fra the phrase in Chinese is jiu, jiu, jiu. Jiu, jiu, which means nine, nine, or, or also forever, forever. Let there be peace and forever more. And that's a great thing. But it, underneath that reality, so you have the nationalists trying to use that symbol to force a peace that isn't actually there. Uh, and they, they seem to be in control, but in reality, they are not. The, the largest part of the country remains under Japanese occupation. And in fact, the nationalists need the Japanese in order to keep control over those areas. Otherwise, they're going to be taken by the communists. So they're victors, but in a very weak position. And they need the Japanese. But it's also important sort of symbolically because the Japanese decide that the best thing they can do for their own future is to work with with the nationalists, because that is going to keep the communists, both the Soviets and the Chinese communists, away from Japan. It will then provide, it is hoped, a peaceful China will provide markets for, China, for Japan that will help Japan revive its economy. And of course, the, that situation is so ironic because the whole war began with Japan trying to wrestle the nationalists into the ground. And I think sort of the third aspect of that that I find so, so, almost so vivid is, uh, is, is, is so important uh, is because Japan, uh, the United States and the British want to make the, the fall of Japan the end of World War II. But in reality, the fighting in China, in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, in Indonesia, in Malaysia and so on doesn't end. So the war continues. There's a huge amount in there with lots of actors and personalities. So we have mm. the Chinese nationalists, Chinese communists, we have the Soviets, we have the British, we have the Americans. And it's really interesting that for your iconic moment, you chose the very end of the war, when we might think of this as an end point, but the way you put it, it's almost a beginning. So to get to that, I'd like to move us backwards a little bit okay. and just talk about some of these actors, some of these personalities. For instance, you've mentioned the Chinese leader Chiang Kai-shek. Now, he's one of the personalities in this book who comes through very strongly. He's a name that people, I guess, sort of remember, particularly if they know a bit of mid-20th century history. But from being 
60, 70 years ago, one of the most famous men in the world. Mm. He's kind of faded and forgotten now. Just take us back a, a moment or two for perhaps people not familiar with, with the history. Very briefly, who, who he was and where he, where, right. where he came from. Who was he? Let's, let's talk a little bit about John Kashek then, because he is an interesting person. Uh, and I think in the, in the key to him is to see him as struggling with his own personality, which can be one that flies into rage and all that stuff and tries to control it. Uh, he believes he has a great mission in order to realize Sun Yat-sen's vision uh, for China. Uh, so he's he, a Chinese nationalist, in other words. He's certainly a nationalist. Uh, he is also the one who has some military training, uh, but he's dealing with a very difficult situation. The nationalists are divided, just all of these warlord armies all around China. Uh, he's, and he is, and he is also dealing, he's not a man with a great deal of international experience. And then strangely enough, his international diplomacy is actually very effective. Because in some ways you could see the, the Chiang Kai-shek as losing his armies during World War II, but also getting the acceptance of the international community of China as an independent, sovereign, equal country that needs to be taken seriously. And that says something about the, uh, the sophistication of nationalist international diplomacy uh, and, and John Kashak and the Nationalists play a weak military hand with great intelligence and actually with great effectiveness, in some ways opposed to the British, who gain a lot militarily from the United States, from the Allies, but lose a lot in terms of their empire. And in that, in that triangle, the Nationalists is, are very important to Roosevelt in beginning to undermine so these empires that have made up the world order uh, until then. So, can I, can I add course, something? Yeah, I think for me, there's sort of, we talk about personalities. In writing this book, um, the, one that, the one personality we rarely talk about in the context of the Second World War is that of Sun Yat-sen. And I think it's very interesting that he remains in people's minds all the time. So, so, so Sun Yat-sen is the great Chinese nationalist leader. He's a figure of the late 19th century. Um, he's actually from Canton or Cantonese origin down in the south of China. And in a very short period of time in the last few decades of the 19th century, in the very beginning of the early 20th century, he becomes enemy number one for the Chinese dynasty of that time, the Qing dynasty, who people may know from the movie The Last Emperor. The Last Emperor was, in fact, the last emperor of the Qing dynasty. And he was a figure who put together a political idea in some ways that was very new in China. The idea that China was not a traditional empire, but should become a nation state in which various different ethnicities and races should come together. You know, he wasn't, I think, a racist in that sense, but he did believe that the Chinese nation should have its own destiny in a world of nation states. So in that sense, he was rather a typical figure of that kind of Asian nationalist, along mm. with Nehru and others in the early 20th century. But he had, of course, this continuing role, a legacy after his death in, in China, inspiring many thinkers of the time, including Chiang Kai-shek. Yes, very clearly. And that's, that's where you... Uh, all those, Chiang Kai-shek acts in the name of Sun Yat-sen. It is a source of legitimacy for him, a symbol that the nationalists use as this is the father of the country. And it is his will that is going to be realised. And uh, the, name, so the name of the Second World War in China is the war of resistance, but also the construction of the nation. With World War II, people in the West tend to associate 
that period with, in Europe, of course, the invasion of Poland by Hitler. Mm. Uh, then Pearl Harbor comes along. The Americans, uh, sometimes slightly jokingly, sometimes not, argue that it's not until Pearl Harbor that the war is really a world war because the US comes in. But your book makes a very powerful case, which I'd certainly agree with, that we have to take China mm. much more seriously as an actor in World War II. And I should say that's based on work that you've been doing in the academic sphere over the last 15, 20 years, perhaps. Mm. So it's a thesis you've you know, brought together over a long time. Could you explain, you know, in the, in the baldest way possible, really, why should those of us who perhaps just know a more general sense of World War II in Europe or in mm. the Pacific take China seriously as an actor during that war? Well, I think for practical reasons, but also for how we understand uh, the world today. Um, and I think it's what the reality is that during World War II, an enormous amount of fighting and violence went on uh, in East Asia, Southeast Asia, and so on. So that is simply a reality we have to take account of. Um, and I think the emphasis on the UK role, the US role, and perhaps even still to a lesser extent the role of the Soviet Union, which of course did most of the fighting against Germany, uh, that, that, that speaks to a narrative that remains essentially Eurocentered. Uh, and that is, I think, in many ways justifiable and understandable because a first generation of scholars uh, who had parents, family members, uh, you know, who were closely affected by the war. But I think it is uh, time... Actually, you're from the Netherlands and one of the things at the beginning of your book you write about is your own family connections in the Netherlands with World War Two. Perhaps we just detour for 30 seconds that's, to hear about that because it, you sounded like that was a rather personally made comment when you talk about Eurocentrism. Right. Um... I don't know if you want to detour the detour later, but um, but I think it, if you go first back to sort of why is China important in the Second World War, I think it's important simply for the reality on the ground. This this was part of a human story that we all need to be aware of. Um, but China also was militarily, politically important, militarily. The usual way, what people say is, you know, it tied down a large part of Japanese forces. So the, the, the general wisdom or conventional wisdom from people who know a little bit about the Asian theatre of World War II is that whatever else happened, five to 600,000 Japanese troops were bogged down in what the Japanese themselves sometimes refer to as the China trap or the China problem, the China quagmire. Is that fair to say that was a Chinese contribution against the Japanese? I think it is fair to say. Um, I mean, I think as you, said, you, you have argued yourself, um, maybe those troops were not first-rate forces. That's true. But if Japan had been able to combine the resources of Japan, Korea, China, Taiwan, that it could have done things with that, especially against the Soviet Union that would have mattered. But I think China mattered too in the geopolitics of the time. Uh, Roosevelt used China, well, I think, to put it bluntly, the participation of China allowed the Allies to argue that we are not fighting a race war. That's so symbolic importance Symbolically hugely important. And that was very important, especially to the United States. Could you give examples of that? I mean, did Roosevelt ever speak out in, in open terms on the radio or elsewhere about this being not just a war for the white races, but for right. all? Yeah, I think that is an aspect that I find fascinating. On the one hand, we have you know, the British version, Churchill goes to Washington and, and, and does his speeches and rallies the United States and is great mates with Roosevelt. What does Roosevelt do? He does that, and that's important, and he goes with that, but he also invites 
Madame Zhang, Song Meilin, to come to the United States. Madame Chiang Kai-shek, the Madame wife Zhang of Chiang Kai-shek. Kai-shek. And, and, and uh, she has uh, radio speeches, uh, but she is a huge hit all across the United States with all her mass rallies. And so you see Roosevelt or the Americans in a very clever way balancing Europe, but also creating a positive Asian other. Less well-known because of much less well-public is that Roosevelt also used Chiang Kai-shek to undermine British control of India, British Empire. Now, hang on, there's a whole generation of, I have to say, crusty, I'll say it, crusty colonels living in small seaside towns, even today in parts of Britain, who are convinced that the Americans are the reason that the British Empire fell in the end. You're basically giving them ammunition with this, right? Uh, I guess so. Um, I, I think Roosevelt was, was working, towards, working towards a world order which no longer was consisted of these highly militarized empire trading blocks. He believed that that made for a very unstable situation and one that is unsustainable given the kind of nationalisms that were clearly emerging all across the world. Uh, and for him, Chiang Kai-shek was a foil by which to make that uh, happen in a very Clyde Way, uh, I mean, he had sort of Chiang Kai-shek appeal to Roosevelt to do a uh, and to to do things in India, or to and then Roosevelt sends on those messages from Chiang Kai-shek to Churchill, knowing very well that Churchill would be very upset by this. Uh, and so, but so he's Roosevelt is a consummate politician in this regard. But he begins to, and of course at Cairo in the, the great conference in Cairo of November 1943, um, Roosevelt really does begin to create an alternative form of East Asia in which China is the regional power. Uh, and I think that, and lots of things are discussed uh, at the Cairo conference. Uh, and we should just make it clear at this point that Winston Churchill, during the Cairo conference in 1943, was very unhappy in many ways because this was the only one of the great conferences of World War II where Chiang Kai-shek, you know, a non-European sovereign leader of a country that was in Asia, sat in equal standing with Winston Churchill and Roosevelt, you know, public photos and all of that. But at the same time, Churchill famously said, isn't there a way we can get the Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek and his wife to just go off and do some tourism in the pyramids and he meant Roosevelt and he would get on with the real work. That's right. So Churchill really did not take to this at all well. No. And if, if you read um, the diaries of uh, Lord Moran, his, 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 his uh, physician, Churchill is, is trying very hard to make an argument about the superiority of English-speaking countries. Roosevelt will have nothing of it. He goes off with Chiang Kai-shek and tries to settle East Asia with Chiang Kai-shek. He wants the Chinese, Chiang Kai-shek, to actually run the occupation of Japan. That doesn't happen in the end. Uh, and in the Cairo communique, the independence of Korea is, is, is announced or is, is, is underwritten. Uh, that was against Churchill's wishes because he well understood the implications. Uh, Roosevelt goes back, has his fireside chats all about sort of these East Asian independence. And you have people in Whitehall saying, well, if that's going to happen uh, in, in whatever, in Korea, then what is going to happen with empire? And indeed, that's exactly right. And so Roosevelt is trying to maneuver in the same way that he tried to maneuver the United States slowly into the Second World War. He's trying to maneuver the world into his version of a, a well, in many ways, the post-war order that we, uh, not well, the Cold War sort of undermined that. But yeah. To put it simply, would you say that Taking that idea in mind and reading your book, Mm. if we want to rethink 
the actually rather you know, almost cliched Anglo-American alliance in World War II, which we all know was an immense motor of allied power that ultimately um, you know, defeated the Axis. To understand it in a new and more complex way, we really have to understand that China and China's situation was a very big deal for the United States. I think that's, that's, that's absolutely right. Um, and this goes about sort of what happens after the Second World War. How are we going to put a new world order together? And America doesn't want to return to the world of empires. I think most simply put, that's it. But I think to go back to a point you made earlier, you talk about sort of the, the UK-US perspectives on World War Two, And I think here my, my background is important. That is a perspective, of course, informed by victors who were never occupied, who didn't have to deal with the realities of occupation. Coming from a country that was occupied... So you're from the Netherlands? I'm from the Netherlands. Uh, and... Uh, the country was occupied and my parents lived through that and, and they talked about that. And I think the reality is sort of to perspe- a perspective informed by the realities of occupation, which must be true for China, does bring up a new way of looking at all this that I think begins to sort of get away from a, a perhaps, a, well, I a, a, a sort of a heroic perspective in which it is victor's against uh, the losers or heroes, against enemies or good against evil. Sort of a more grey history, I think, is what, as a second generation, uh, we should be moving towards. So let's try and nail down something on that point more specifically. And again, many people listening may not know that much about the Chinese role in World War II. It's probably of the major theatres of the war, still the one that's been least documented in English, certainly, and ununderstood. So let me give you, if I may, a very quick sketch of perhaps some common perceptions from people who know a little bit about it, but not very much. And you tell me if you think they're fair or not. This idea is that China was invaded by the Japanese, and that was, of course, a, a terrible thing and a, and a, a, you know, a war crime. But the China of that time was essentially a weak country, a corrupt country. It was ruled by Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalists, who were a pretty backward and unpleasant uh, group of, uh, of people. Eventually, uh, during the wartime period, they didn't actually do that much fighting against the Japanese. Mm. By the time the Americans came along, as well as the British, to help them after Pearl Harbor in 1941, Chiang Kai-shek's nickname had become, for some Americans, Cash My Check, because uh, the rumour was that he asked for increasingly large sums of money, but never actually delivered. And then by the time you get to 1945 and the end of the war, the communists under Mao Zedong, who had become Chairman Mao, probably the most famous Chinese person of the of the 20th century, mm. rightly basically managed to conquer this corrupt and backward government and instead set up a new and much cleaner government in 1949. Now, as I say, that's not, I hasten to add, that's not my view, <laughs> but in my own book, I've tried to push back against that. But I would say yeah. that that's perhaps a thumbnail sketch yes. of perceptions people have. Uh, that's not entirely fair, is it? No, uh, and I think there are two elements to that. I mean, you have written about this in, in, in your own book in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very excellent way, a very vivid way to undermine that particular image. I think there are two elements of this. One is sort of what do we know actually happened on the ground? And the other element of this is why did that image emerge and to what extent was US politics important in that and why has it taken us so long to undermine that, that, that or to get a more, uh, active, more realistic account of what happened on the ground? Uh, and of course, uh, as we do know, uh, 
Chinese nationalist forces did a great deal of fighting, both in the early years of the war, as, as, as you have uh, described, uh, but the fighting continued. Uh, the, the, the number of casualties didn't actually decrease very much after the first years of the fighting. Uh, and it sort of becomes a whole horrifying story. And the whole idea that the Chinese nationalists did not want to fight the Japanese, uh, that is no longer a story that I think... And we can't go into huge detail in this conversation, but for those who read your book, there will be names of battles such as Taijuan, Changsha, Wuhan, uh, very unfamiliar names in the West, but tales of, you know, you, you said we had to be wary about the word heroism, but some of them are really rather heroic yes. stories. Yes. And for people who have grown up with battle names like El Alamein, Bulge, Ardennes, this would be, I think, a worthy right. set of battles to add to that. I, I think that's, that's right. I think we need to add those, those names of Wuhan, Taijuan, but also Ichigo. In 1944, to that list of battles. In the Ichigo same 1944 way, is the single biggest Japanese campaign in China during the whole war. Yes, which which I think changed much of the history, actually. But uh, in similarly, the sort of Chinese generals, and some of them were really, really outstanding, both on the nationalist and the communist side. Uh, Tang Anbo would be one, but Lin Biao would be another on the communist side. They all need to be be added to it. What I want to do in the book is is to bring home the um, amount of fighting that actually happened, the conditions in which that had to take place, um, but also the enormous sacrifices that China was willing to make, and perhaps because despite rather sometimes indifferent leadership or a very weak hand, um, in order to resist the Japanese and to save their civilization, I think it was that serious. Why did large parts of China keep fighting, do you think? Because this is a very agrarian society. It's a poor society. In 1940, France was conquered completely. And, you know, one can't necessarily um, blame the French uh, for that. You know, some parts of China were occupied and under collaboration. But two large groupings, the Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, the Chinese communists with Mao Zedong, very powerful. At one point, they were really the only people in Asia who were fighting the Japanese mm. Why do you think they continue to do that? To, today's story is that, of course, the Chinese people got together and resisted. You know, this is very much the propaganda of the Communist Party about the idea that, of course, there would be this heroic story of resistance to invaders. But you and I know that this isn't how wars work. People are frightened. People are human beings. They think about their families. They think about their locality. And yet they did fight. Why? They did fight. Initially, reluctantly, I think, um, I think in the first year of the war, some sort of settlement would have had brought support among the population. Although, an agreement with the Japanese. An agreement with the Japanese, although not necessarily among uh, university-going students, but they may not have been as politically important as they themselves thought. Um, but I think by 1938, certainly by 1939, there was a general will to continue to fight at a certain level, a realization that, yes, we're not going to have the kinds of offensive that is going to deliver immediate victory, but we are not going to let the Japanese will uh, win. And I think that is about, that, it, that is informed in part by China's deep history, deep historical consciousness of China as a civilization, as a continuing history that has got done this kind of thing before. It survived the Mongols, the Manchus, the Taiping, and so on. It has dealt with these kinds of uh, upheavals before. Um, also, of course, modern nationalism spread through radio, theatre, 
um, and through sort of propaganda teams. I think all these things really, really do matter. And as education grew, nationalism grew as well. Yes, you have lots of lots of sort of schools across China. Of course, the nationalists continue to support education uh, throughout China during the war, put a lot of effort into that. I think very, very important. I'd add another factor, which I think, I entirely agree with that, but I'd add one more factor also, which is the growth in the responsibilities of government, particularly in terms of welfare. But I think this is one area where actually understanding of the wartime period is both comparable in some ways to the West and has developed in the China field of scholarship in recent years, because we now know that there were things like healthcare schemes, yeah. refugee relief schemes. I mean, we don't know exact numbers, but something like 60, 80 million, maybe more Chinese became refugees in their own country during the years from 1937 to 1945. And as part of this, a whole variety of experimentation in setting up new hospitals, mm-hmm. vaccines nation programs, natalist programs that were trying to encourage women to give birth to healthy babies. I mean, we see this in lots of other countries too, of course, uh, on both the Allied and Axis sides. In Britain, you could say that the product of that same instinct is what we now call the National Health Service. There was nothing quite so sophisticated no. in China, no. but certainly the idea that public provision should be part of it. I think that's one of the things that in the end helps to fuel enthusiasm for communism as well. I think you're right, but I think there's an, a more, that is a positive side to the story. I think there's also a very negative side which I really do want to drive home in this book, which is that the government, both the nationalists and the communists, made the Chinese people, uh, the, the, the sacrifices they demanded of the Chinese people were so severe that there was no returning turning back. I think one of the aspects that people have talked very little about is the scorched earth policy of the nationalists from the beginning and at last the whole time. Whole cities were burned, whole provinces were inundated. Just explain the logic behind their strategy. Why did they do that? They copied this in part from, of course, Napoleon's, from the Russian approach to Napoleon's advance into uh, Russia. Uh, that, that was, you know, people talked about that this worked in order to resist an invader. You make the population sacrifice so much, the price they pay is so much, there is no turning back from that. But it is also part of Chinese tradition where you sort of clear the countryside and remove everything that the enemy can use. Uh, so there is a toughness to conducting this war. Uh, that means this is an all-out war. This is actually one form of total war. Uh, and that, I think, once you have made that kind of sacrifice, you may be critical of your government, you may be critical of this, you may re- resent or not like the fact that all these uh, government surfaces are not perfect, but you're not going to give in to the Japanese. Because they are the invader, they are the enemy. Uh, and you know, it is, and it's, it's of course what I had in mind too is the U.S. invasion of Iraq, where you know they think we're going to be welcomed as liberators. Well, forget it. You're the enemy. Uh, you are going to be resisted. Uh, and and I think that point was driven home by just in, in the demand for enormous sacrifices, which were made, and that itself I think is a symbol of the desire, the, the continuing, not even desire, the willingness to pay all manner of prices to resist Japan. You're painting. A pretty bleak yes. picture of yes. China during wartime. Is that the right way to think about it? Yes, I do. Uh, because the kinds of stories we hear about individual sacrifices, uh, the kinds of things that happened, this, this was uh, you know, a tough, tough, tough time in which many people did suffer very grievously. And where war, in the end, war is very serious and often callous business. That is the nature of war. And that is one reason why I'm sort of, one reason I'm emphasizing this is because the kind of 
narratives in which China is the hero, which sort of could not but win, in which everybody came happily together. I think that would is, be the communist sort of propaganda. the communist later. propaganda. I think it doesn't deal with that reality. We can't talk about the war without addressing at least a little bit the question of the military and military strategy. And this is a very significant and central thread to the book. So let me, if I may, start with a few quite quite simple thoughts, but ones that I would love to hear your, your more complex answers to, I think. The first is that if there is perhaps one general understanding of one of the effects of World War II in China, mm. it is that it brings about a communist revolution in China. But the fact is that there's still an overall narrative in mid-20th century China that a, a failed nationalist government is worn out by World War II and eventually gives way to a resurgent communist party that takes power under Mao Zedong in 1949. So how important... And in what way is the war against Japan important for the ultimate communist victory? Well, Mao Zedong was absolutely right. Uh, On everything? At least on this, when he had visitors from Japan, including Japan's prime minister at the time, who wanted to apologise endlessly for having invaded China, he thanked them for having done so because without a Japanese invasion, as he put it, we would still be in the hills, and that is probably true. Uh, so the conditions for the, the, the rise of the Chinese communists were, were, were clearly created by the Japanese invasion. Uh, remember, I mean, you know all this, but remember that um, before 1937, uh, before 1937, uh, the nationalists were well on the way of eradicating the communists. Uh, and the Japanese invasion created the spaces behind Japanese lines, the opportunities politically, economically, for the communists to establish their bases, to uh, create armies, to bring populations under control, to make propaganda, and so on, and so on, and so on. And just very simply put, if in 1937 the communists had whatever, 10, 15, 20,000 troops by the end, by 1945, they have, what is the figure, 500,000, a million troops? Maybe as many as a million. Maybe, so they, they go from well, really a few tens of thousands to seven-figure yeah. sums when it comes to... Yeah, they to claim a million, which I think is slightly propaganda, maybe. but nonetheless, more, far more than they began with. And they control much of North China. And of course, then they have the opportunity to flood into Manchuria, which they turn into a base from which they will occupy all of... China. Now, I think that, so I, th I don't, I wouldn't challenge that, 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 that basic narrative that the Japanese occupation, the Japanese invasion creates the opportunities militarily, socially, economically uh, for uh, the communist victory to, to happen. And I think there's a good deal of truth in saying that by 1945, uh, the, the nationalists were simply too exhausted. And I think the withdrawal of the United States from East Asia, the attempted withdrawal from the United States, is an important factor as well. But that's sort of the international context. But the point I want to make in the book is that what we are seeing is the development, and this is why it is important today for our understanding of World War II, but I think also for military affairs today. What comes out of this is well, as an anthropologist would call it, a new modality of warfare. And what would a non-anthropologist call it? How, how would you explain that? A non-Clausewitzian model of warfare, as military historians would call it. <laughs> and for it. those of us who speak plain English? <laughs> but you're, you're talking about different ways of fighting war, and that's what the war's is. It what what are those changes? It's a different approach to warfare. And I think sort of the, the book is constructed as... Uh, 
the Japanese and the nationalists beginning what we would call, sort of call conventional warfare, conventional Clausewitzian warfare, which is large armies supported by an industry, supported by a modern government, uh, fighting on the battlefield and one wins and the other doesn't and then you have some sort of treaty or occupation and the thing is So, so in other words, what we generally think of when we think of war, you know, men in uniforms with weapons fighting each other on a battlefield, that, that yeah, sort of that thing. That kind of warfare. And I think what World War II does uh, generally is ending that kind of warfare where, of course, the, the power of a state is heavily dependent on how many men it can bring into the field uh, because each man will carry a gun or a machine gun and that's sort of your power. And that changes as a result of World War II, I think in two ways. One, well, in, in a number of ways, but on the one hand, one comes out of this in the long, well, not even in the long run, uh, by 1945, is nuclear war or atomic warfare, uh, which is, of course, you know, you have something, you don't need so many men in the field to destroy your enemy, you drop one bomb, that's it. That's enough, done. Uh, and clearly that, that shapes the post-war order in very fundamental ways. But I think the other side of this, and you know, conventional war continues in some ways, but the other side that comes out of this is what I would call national liberation war. And that in Mao has an important contribution in that. That is asymmetric warfare, as you would understand it. It's, so it's the, the, the communists didn't have very powerful weapons, although they got a lot from the Japanese in the end. Uh, but they use what they have in new kinds of ways. And they, they avoid the battlefield. They are very unconventional by the time, by the standards of the time, not in trying to seek out the critical weak point in the enemy formation, but spreading it out across a very large area. They also, and in, in this kind of national liberation warfare, what is important is the mobilization of the population, ideologically. Uh, and that, that uh, land, land reform in China was very important to bring the population. That's so, social change. Just sticking to the warfare for a moment, okay. I mean, asymmetric, one phrasing, a phrase that an awful lot of people may have heard of and which they might associate with Mao Zedong, the mm. communist leader of, of in the wartime period, is guerrilla warfare. Right. When you say national liberation warfare, is it that sort of guerrilla tactics that you're, you're talking about? As Mao would call it, yes. But I think guerrilla warfare, this is where the change is. A, class, a traditional understanding of guerrilla warfare is sort of as a last resort. You've lost the battle. You go into the forest in the mountains. There's harassment of the There's harassment. And Mao said, no, you're not going to win that way. And very early on, uh, he decides that that isn't the way, you know, he has fought that kind of warfare in the 30s and it has failed. So he is searching for a new way of warfare. Uh, and that, yes, you begin with guerrilla warfare, but you also build very large bases. You govern them. You conduct these propaganda campaigns through modern media to the extent that it existed at the time, but certainly newspapers and radio was very important in, in Maoism. And also strategies. indoctrination tactics with the population. Indoctrination tactics. You draw the population into what you're trying to do. Into a, and you use the population in all kinds of ways. And then for him, what he called Maoist guerrilla warfare, well, what he called guerrilla warfare uh, in a Maoist way, was then to, to build up those bases and gain the ability to wage the large-scale battles that you would ultimately need to defeat the enemy. So Mao was never just guerrilla warfare in the way that we might have understood it traditionally. It was always moving towards these large-scale battles. Because if we think about the way in which the war goes on, 
one of the things that is very distinctive about the way you put the book is mm. that you could almost read it as one long set of wars from let's say 1937 when you know the major war breaks out between China and Japan and 1953 right. which is the end of the Korean War mm. so in that time we have three wars we have the second world war in China the war of resistance against Japan and then from 1946 to 49 we have the civil war between nationalists and communists and then almost a year later with barely a space to breathe the Korean war starts with the north Koreans the chinese and the um, implicit support of the soviet union behind them launching a war that lasts from 1950 to 53 does military do military tactics and techniques change for the chinese of that time are they learning mm. particularly the chinese communists are they learning and adapting over the course of those three wars in a dozen years yeah they are and i think the reason i i put some so much emphasis on this development is because it is sort of the opposite of atomic warfare but at least as influential because you get the same kind of fighting in in vietnam uh in, in in the middle east and many other areas of the world and this and and you know as we now know his the founders of al qaeda strategy read their mao uh, and they they get oh, really this is yes 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 according to uh the british state department they do so i i'll take their intelligence for it uh and that makes sense you have in the same way that mao read clausewitz and i think it's these circulations that i find very interesting um but to go back to your original question about this about sort of i you're right i i define this as this period as 1937 1953 uh and as you say there are sort of three wars and i think they are interlinked that it would be my argument so sort if of you have the japanese and the nationalists begin conventional warfare but by 1938 1939 they realize that's not going to work we're not going to control china as a result so they they begin to experiment with different ways so the japanese just to explain that that's because in the end china is just very big very rural holding it down conventionally with lots of troops stationed it's like sort of pouring a small amount of water into a massive frying pan or something so it's a, that's a lovely image uh not going to work uh and so they do two things they they begin aerial bombardment and they're trying to create a new china in their terms which is a very federalist china which actually i think for which there was much more support than we probably think i think that's right and uh from your readings of joe forhai and wang jingwei you will have seen that it is probably the case so there wasn't a stupid move at all but it doesn't work which again demonstrates how serious ultimately china was about not having the japanese run their country um to the nationalists themselves sort of they 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 spread out the war and they they tried to keep it going but waiting for a foreign assistance either the USSR or the USA uh and that sort of gets stuck and it doesn't work then the USA comes in and that changes the nature of the war it sort of that China can export its violence outside its borders it does so in Burma and then suddenly it all ends but by that time the communists have built up their base areas their manpower accumulated the weapons trained their forces and they can flood into manchuria so it's 1949 mao zedong's communist forces have finally defeated the nationalist forces of chiang kai shek chiang kai shek has been sent has gone to taiwan in exile never to return as it turns out mm. And the, the official story, if you go to read any textbook in China, and goodness knows I've read a few of them, is that that is when a new, peaceful, stable regime is set up. 1949 is the beginning of New China, capital N, capital C, right? Right, sort of. 
<laughs> but not entirely. <laughs> but not entirely in this sense. That we keep, keep, just keep in mind that nationalist forces continued to fight in China well until 1949. So these are Chiang Kai-shek's Chiang Kai-shek's forces. forces. You have Muslim forces, the famous Ma family fighting from Mongolia. Uh, resistance continues from Burma. But I think more importantly, you know, there's so much upheaval in the country going on. There's so many guerrillas, bandits, whatever, that this is not a society at peace. But then comes the challenge of Korea. The Korean which, War. And mm-hmm. that is, we can talk, I think, for a long time about this. Um, but that is, I think, where, where Mao's National Liberation War finds out that its power, too, is limited. Uh, we don't have to go into detail about the Korean War, but let's say, you know, the Americans come in and they push the North Koreans back. Then the Chinese believe that they have to enter. They do many of the sort of guerrilla things that they've learned during the Civil War uh, in sort of going behind enemy lines, spreading out, waging that kind of guerrilla warfare, taking, uh, push, uh, tearing, uh, spreading the whole battlefield out through, through very large areas. And they do very well. But then the Americans are challenged to say, do we fight back or not? And it is probably more of a the result of the situation in Europe than, it, than the whole idea that Korea... The is, emerging Cold War. The mean. emerging Cold War. The idea that Korea is, is clearly not a strategic threat to the United States. But by this time, you have the Cold War uh, beginning. Uh, you have the idea that, uh, you know, we have to contain the, United, the, the Soviet Union. And so Korea becomes a test of that resolve. Uh, and the Americans, under Truman, put in a lot of forces and they stabilise at the 38th parallel. Mao continues to push for offensives against the Americans until he must accept that he can not win. The hope of a communist victory across Northeast Asia, so including Manchuria, remains very strong in China, of course, in North Korea, as well as in the Soviet Union. But in the end... Military, the kind of military power that Mao has by this time is not enough to dislodge the Americans. The Americans are not willing to pay the price for going all the way to Beijing, for instance, or, or doing anything more. They, they, they stabilize. So I think by this time, so it is 1953, end of the Korean War, Stalin is dead. Um, there, is an ex- there is an acceptance all around that, uh, that borders are going to be stabilized in the way with which we still live. We're coming towards the end of the conversation. I want to just throw some thoughts at you about some of the contemporary legacy of, of, of all of this, because you're dealing with history. But I sometimes like to say that um, this whole wartime period in Europe is history. In Asia, it's basically current affairs, even today. Yeah. And the three wars we've mentioned, the Second World War in China, the Civil War and the Korean War still actually have a tremendous amount of impact in the way that the region is shaped and deals with its own traumas and issues in the present day. Absolutely. What do you think these wars mean to the Chinese people today? How do, do they think about them? And if so, how do they think about them? Uh, well, as I'm sure you remember from our supervisions, whenever everybody says the Chinese people... I should point people, out that uh, Hansa has passed form as someone who actually attempted to teach me uh, many, many years ago. You may, you may judge how successful or otherwise he was in that endeavour. So, yes, I may remember. <laughs> the Chinese people is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is too, too big a chunk for me to, to do. I think this probably goes at various levels. Um, the Chinese government today is using World War II in much the same way that... The Russian 
British, the Dutch, the French, but maybe less the French, the American governments are using World War II and that is about sort of creating a national story that tries to bind people together. And This was a good war where we fought yeah, evil. It's, it's a feel-good type narrative. And I think that's sort of fair enough. I mean, and you architect beautifully in, in your own book. So I have no problems with that. I think at different levels, there's still a lot to be thought about. Um, and at lower levels, you can see the different sorts of commemoration. Um, people are beginning to talk about uh, the Wang Jingwei, sort of the collaborationist element. The equivalent uh, of Pétain or Laval, Pétain, you might say in the Pétain French. And so on. Yeah. Yes. His poetry is widely admired, even though prescribed, but circulates, uh, which I think is very interesting. But it does. And so when, people, when I talked with people, I said, oh, yes, Wang Jingwei's poetry, very good poetry. Uh, so it is known. Uh, and so I think there's, there's probably a greater sophistication at commemoration. I was very interesting. I've had, uh, I, I teach some of this, of course, and I have seminars with Chinese people there. Uh, and they are very suspicious of the central narrative they have. What they do find, uh, when I sort of make comparisons with war commemorations in here in the United States or in Europe, is I think there's a longing for local commemorations to see the individual stories of each individual So the city. hometown soldiers or the village yes. that was burnt down nearby, that sort of that thing. That kind of story, is, I think there's a real longing for. Um, and as I'm sure you know, uh, the Chinese are perfectly capable of taking the mickey out of any central narrative. And uh, they have you great You just have to fun. look at the Chinese internet these days <laughs> yeah. to see all the, the sarcastic <laughs> comments, yes. So, I, so it's, you know, in that sense, it's, 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 it's complicated. But I think the point that this is still alive and remains something that that is still in the process of being discovered at deeper levels is very true and that is very important but something perhaps to finish off that is not yet deep i think is western understanding of these conflicts and their significance so in the end if you have readers and you know those listening in will be primarily, I think, from the Anglophone world. Um, and they'll have, you know, I think perhaps not had as much exposure to the history of China in World War II as is the case for, say, Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, Japan and the Pacific, the United States. So if someone listening is moved, and I hope they are, to order China at war and read through, what would you want them to come out knowing or thinking about China's role particularly perhaps in World War II during this period, what would you like them to understand that perhaps you have a sense that people don't understand at the moment? I think two things. One is that uh, when we talk about World War II, it is very important that we talk or have in mind a global perspective, that we see World War II in all its diversity. Yes, there was a unified World War II. Yes, there were the Allies. Yes, there was collaboration and, at, at that point. But there was also lots of regional difference. Uh, and of that, we need to be much more aware. And I think China is a very good case study for seeing that, that kind of difference. But for other areas, the Middle East, Africa, go, you can go on and on, Southeast Asia, that is all important. I think the other aspect I want to is that war was, was all encompassing. But we have to have an eye for the sort of the human story, the humanity that is at the bottom of all this. Uh, and that it isn't, uh, it won't do to have a very sort of simplified heroic narrative. Uh, and that sort of the, the human story behind all this is, is very important. Um, I mean, heroism is one thing. Another phrase that came to my mind, maybe 
a word is gratitude. Is there any sense in which the West, we ought to perhaps just be a little more grateful for China deciding that it would fight Japan in the very dark days of 1937, 38, 39? Yes, and that is, of course, a point you have made brilliantly. Um, it is it is part of, I think that is sort of what's behind your argument there. It is part of our story as much as of, it is not just, it's not just their them. story. It is, we have to see them as them in the sense that it isn't the same as us. But when we talk about a global history of World War II, then it is all our story. And that complexity we must see. That was Hans van der Ven in conversation with Rana Mitter. China at War, Triumph and Tragedy in the Emergence of the New China will be published later this month in the UK by Profile. And in the US, it will be available as a Kindle edition. For more on this subject, you might also be interested in Rana Mitter's book, China's War with Japan, 1937-1945, to The Struggle for Survival, which was published back in 2013 by Alan Lane. Meanwhile, you can read a written version of Hans and Rana's conversation in issue 5 of BBC World Histories magazine, which is currently on sale. You can find it in many good retailers and order it direct from us via the website buysubscriptions.com. Now before we go, don't forget that tickets for our live events at Winchester and York are currently on sale. The weekends take place from the 6th to 8th of October and 24th to 26th November respectively. And talks are now beginning to sell out. Head to historyweekend.com for more details and to purchase tickets. Well, that's about it for today, but please do join us again on Thursday when we'll be delving into a shocking crime story from 1970s Iceland. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 